Hi folks, it's Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, June the 20th, 2012, and this is episode 926 of the Survival Podcast. I have a cool guest for you today. His name is Alex Levins. He's here to talk to us about primitive skills, uh, axe skills, uh, and you're using the action tracking skills and training with really cool people like John Young and Cody Lundeen. I'll bring him on in just a minute. Before I do, though, I have the housekeeping for you. And if you usually skip, don't because you have a chance to win something today. Something really cool. I'll tell you what it is as soon as I tell you who our sponsors of the day are. Sponsor of the day number one, Save Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Why are they original? Because they were first. They were the first people that stepped up and said, Hey, Jack, we want to sponsor your show. We want to be part of what you're doing. How do we do that? We set up a whole program uh, because they asked to sponsor the show. It was really a little bit before I had planned on doing it. The entire way that we vet our sponsors was based on taking Safe Castle as our first sponsor. Hey, and they're a huge supporter, too, because they have a discount buyer's club. You pay $49 for that, and you have then for the rest of your life big discounts on everything that they sell. But here's the great deal. Instead of paying 49 bucks for their membership, pay 50 bucks, join the member support brigade, get discounts to 31 other vendors, and also get their lifetime membership for free. How cool is that? So uh, they are a big supporter of the show, and you'll find everything you need for your prepping at their website, long-term food storage, the tactical, the practical, from one end to the other. And if you're interested in a hardened shelter, and there's, you know, if you live in Tornado Alley, there's a reason to consider that. Check out their sister site when you're over at their main website, and you can see the hardened shelters they build. Their website is at prepared.pro, prepared.pro. Best way to find them and all our sponsors, of course, go to the Survival Podcast, click on their banner in the right-hand margin, and you know you're dealing with someone that actually carries our personal endorsement. Next up today, backyardfoodproduction.com. Hey, you know what? If you want to turn your backyard into a food-producing machine, you need to get the DVD from Marjorie Wildcraft called Food Production Systems for a Backyard or a Small Farm, and it'll show you exactly how to do just that. Uh, check them out today. Again, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Uh, next, I want to remind you guys, you can go by TSPCopper.com. Again, the, the website is TSP copper.com for some really cool AOCS copper rounds. We have some great stuff there. Check them out. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, first responders as well. Send me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did with the subject line military discount or service discount in the subject line. And I will get back to you with a discount code so you can get a discount on the Member Support Brigade and get all the great benefits like the free uh, membership to Safecastle, like the free membership to Western Botanicals, like $150 worth of free ebooks, like discounts from 32 different vendors. Awesome stuff. Pays for itself, and you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. Today, though, you can win for free. Um, I'm going to give away, uh, kind of as a co-sponsor of this contest with Keith Snow, I'm going to give away uh, two free member support brigade members. I will pick three people at random. The first person picked, I will email you tomorrow and say you've been picked. Which What, what do you want? Uh, the, the gift from Keith or the free MSB? The other two, you get whatever's left after the first one pick. Well, actually, if the first one picks an MSB, then it'll be left over in the second person, third person in line. And I'm going to do this with a random number picker. 
I'm going to tell you how to play this contest right now. This is our online version of the old call the radio host and be caller number eight type uh, contest. It works like this. You send me an email. You do not use my contact form. You send me an email. You send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. In the subject line, you put a code word, and today it's actually going to be a code number. I'm going to tell you how to find it on Chef Keith's website. You don't put anything else in the subject line except the number or your entry is disqualified, and you only send one email. You only get to play one time. The contest runs until midnight tonight. This is the 20th of June. If you're listening to it on the 21st, you missed it. I'm sorry. That's just the way that it is. Uh, and uh, that's it's Central Standard Time. So here's how you find the subject line. Go to HarvestEating.com. Click on Shopping to go into Keith's store. I want to put some traffic on his site. You'll see the newly packaged Harvest Eating Organic Seasonings is the last item listed in the store. Click on that. In there you'll see all six of them and the six-pack sampler. The six-pack sampler sells for $55. The winner gets one free. It's sitting on my ca my kitchen table at home. Chef Keith sent it over. We will mail it directly to you. Therefore, in the body of your email, give me your name and your shipping address, and that way we can ship it straight to the winner, even if they uh, they they don't get back to us for some reason. Something gets mixed up in the mail. If you not conclude your shipping address, I will not mail it to you. I will pick another person who did as the winner. Again, two other people will win a free win a free MSB, and I will ask the winners in the order they're picked based on a random number generator which they want, and I'll tell the other ones once somebody picks the spice sampler that that's what they get. Now, what do you need to get me on this page to win? What you need to do is you need to look at my favorite personal seasoning. Uh, seasoning. That's the Harvest Eating Montreal Steak Seasoning. And there's a SKU number there. It says uh, underneath, it says Harvest Eating Montreal Steak Seasoning, SKU. And then there's a number. It is a five-digit number. That number is the code word. I know it seems awful involved, but I thought it would be good for you guys to get a look at what you might be winning and see this Montreal Steak Seasoning that I've been raving about. Also, he used to send this stuff in Ziploc bags. Now it's in these metal containers. It is a huge improvement. Uh, one more thing, you'll see a low and slow competition barbecue rub. If you're looking to pick some stuff up and you're not going to buy the full sampler, I recommend you add that one. That's a new one. I made ribs with it last night. They were freaking awesome. So that wraps up the housekeeping. I know it went long, but we do have a, uh, a contest going. And with that, I'm ready to introduce our special guest today. Again, his name is Alex Levins. He's a longtime wilderness uh, and survival uh, wilderness survivalist. And he uh, actually was a scout, too. He uh, won the Eagle Scout Award. He's a backcountry ranger, and a, he's been a uh, climbing assistant at Ho, Ho River Valley, Olympic National Park. Uh, he's been a wildlife firefighter in three states. He's been an instructor for the Boulder Outdoor Survival School, also known as BOSS. He's done over a decade of intensive study in Aikido, a Japanese martial art. I like that martial art, by the way. Uh, studied extensively under John Young, founder of the Wilderness Awareness School, and was an instructor at the Wilderness Awareness School alongside of uh, John Young. And most recently, he produced a DVD, Axe Skills for the Homestead and Wilderness Survival. Cool guy with a lot to talk about, and uh, he's here to join us today. And with that, hey, Alex, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hi, Jack. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, we're here to talk about all kinds of tracking stuff and axe skills and stuff like that today, but I was checking you out, and it seems like you've, you've, uh, you've worked with and trained with some pretty big names in the tracking and nature awareness world, uh, one being John Young and uh, the other being Cody Lundeen. What, what, what was that like? 
Uh, both experiences were great. Actually, I mean, of all the people I've worked with, I, you know, I would just say, uh, yeah, everyone is just amazing, talented people. Uh, John Young specifically, I met him when I was about uh, 19 years old, and uh, I just started driving up to Seattle to take his classes and ended up working for him a little bit. Um, pretty inspiring guy. Like, I don't know if I've really met anyone as inspiring uh, as he is, uh, we, we, like even up until that point, like I think I I didn't really read or really wasn't into learning that much. But all of a sudden, I was like a 19 year old kid, uh, you know, spending all my Friday nights at home alone, uh, going through tracking journals and and uh, reading about the natural world. So he really made me fall in love with learning. Um, uh, his actually, uh, John Young, uh, he's so connected with a lot of the native cultures. He works a lot with the Iroquois and the, um, the Lakota people. And also, uh, so in, on top of the tracking, what he does is uh, um, really community building, the kind of really positive community building around nature awareness. Um, but actually what I'd really say, like his biggest contribution to uh, tracking and these types of studies is, uh, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, what he calls bird language or kind of the study of uh, bird alarms yeah, where they have an intuitive sense, and if we understand their language, then we can we can learn from it, interpret it, and it also changes the way that we ourselves assess situations. Yeah, yeah, and it's really, I mean, just such a, a practical skill just to know, um, practical and pretty basic, like with really just a basic understanding of how bird alarms work. Um, people can go in the woods and really be able to tell, you know, where hawks are or where owls are, if there's a certain type of predator moving through the forest or if people are... Are approaching from from quite a distance away. So, and he's really like no one's really developed it like like he has. Um, I really think that's one of the. I think it's a huge contribution to. Yeah, to I, I need to buy his book. He's got a book out called What the Robin Knows, and I, I haven't right. read that yet. But that that's probably pretty cool. I mean, it just makes me think of like when I was a kid hunting a lot. If if you got busted by a blue jay, you weren't going to see a deer for a while. So the animals know oh, the yeah, exactly. bird calls just, as well, right? Yeah. yeah, I remember I was hunting with my dad when I was. One time I was 15 in central Oregon, and we were coming up over a hill, and there was a jay alarming in a tree, and we kind of sneak over the hill, and there's a bunch of deer running away. And yep. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's really common, and, you know, and just simply to, to – and it's something a lot of, like, most folks, if you haven't spent much time in the woods, don't know, don't know that too well, but it's really easy to, to learn just as you, as you uh, little tune side into it. A quick story on that. I had a great uncle named Pete, and we were out hunting one time, and sometimes jays will see you, like, in a tree stand or whatever and just start screaming at you, and they won't stop. Mm. So I could hear mm-hmm. it just about a half a mile away, and hear it, nah, 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 and it went on for like 15 <laughs> minutes. And this guy's sitting down there with an 06. And all of a sudden, after about 15 minutes of nonstop screaming, I just hear, and uh, he, I think he got tired of it when he shot the blue jay with 306. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. You can, you can go on with what you're saying there. Oh, that's okay. That's a funny story. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've been busting like a song sparrow. I remember hunting in the Tillamook Rainforest and coming around a corner on a logging road, and a song sparrow comes to the top of an elderberry bush and just starts alarming dramatically for, you know, like minutes and minutes, like maybe 15 minutes, half hour, and... Um, yeah, it just totally busted that area for me for, for hunting for that day. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so John Young, yeah, a uh, really amazing teacher, amazing uh, community builder, and then the bird language was uh, remarkable. Uh, Cody Lundin, um, I studied with him for just a little bit. We actually both started um, 
at the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. He didn't really work there. He was a student and then just put up his own shingle right after that, after he was a student there and started teaching in Arizona. Um, but I trained with it probably about a month, kind of intensively. Um, he really filled in some big holes for me. I had already been working at the Boulder Outdoor Survival School for a couple of years, but I was still a pretty young instructor. Um, I think I was about 22 when I, when I trained with him. And, uh, and up until that point, I really thought about the difference really between primitive skills and practical survival, um, which they're of course related, but, um, but that was something that I, I really thought about. What, what do you mean by training. that? I think I know, but I mean, I'd like to hear you kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I guess the idea is that for practical survival, and it's really what we're talking about, like the people who got in the woods who are the most at risk for uh, getting caught overnight or having to survive for 24 to 48 hours are like a day hiker and a, and a hunter. Folks who typically don't have maybe all the things like a backpacker would have for an extended stay in the wilderness. They're not planning for an extended stay. Um, so they typically just have the gear for the day. You know, and if they don't have their 10 essentials, then um, that could be a problem. And so really what those folks need to um, uh, need to have is uh, things that they have. They need to have the gear on them, modern gear, modern equipment to make a shelter within a few minutes, to make a fire reliably within a few minutes. Um, you, and if we oppose that to uh, primitive skills, you wouldn't want to, like in a survival situation, you wouldn't automatically go and look for uh, sticks to make a bow drill fire with or uh, um, look for wild edible plants or, uh, you know, these types of primitive things. You really just need uh, to get out of the weather, have some modern equipment to make, you know, to make an emergency fire, emergency shelter with right away. Um, and, and that's kind of the main, that's what I feel like the main difference is. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. In, in my mind. Um, but, uh, and, but they are related, of course, too. There, there's definitely a lot of overlap. Um, and I, I always find, like, especially with primitive fire making, the more the folks understand the primitive process, say, like, hand drill or bow drill fire, because um, it's really a, a tricky process, and even like a little, little bits of humidity or a little gusts of wind can uh, can knock out your efforts. And so, the more you understand these really subtle ways to make a fire, um, and the more you understand the natural world, of course, the materials to use out there, then the, the better you are at, at the more the modern survival, modern fire making, and, and things like that. Yeah, I've always said I think that there's a, a huge lack of knowledge among the average person of how to even make a fire, and I'm not talking about a bow drill or a hand drill or even a ferro rod. I'm just talking about you got a big lighter, uh, and you got lots of dry material. Oh, yeah. People don't understand the, 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 the basic process by which fire works, and as soon as you understand that, you can build a fire anywhere, uh, but there's a lot of people out there that I've seen – I've seen it like, you know, 4th of July's or something like that where they set up a burn barrel and they're going to burn stuff, and there's five dudes trying to make a fire, and they can't make a fire. So somebody runs and grabs the yeah. Uh, yeah. lighter fluid and near burns their eyeballs off because they don't realize they're creating a, a funnel for the fumes, right? You know, I mean, it's uh, it, it, right. it's kind of a right. sad world that we live in with that, but I won't beat that up. It's just, you know, you're absolutely right. It's about the, the process and and if it's a survival situation, you're only rubbing sticks together if that's your only choice. Right, and that's really, like, I wouldn't even, I mean, I can make a friction fire in real, well under a minute, but I, that's not something I would want to rely on in, you know, an emergency situation. When I go out in the woods hunting or hiking, I always have my 
you know, my uh, metal match, something for a shelter, like even, whether it's a garbage bag or a, a tarp, I always have the, you know, the practical quick things I need to, to get out of a, out of a jam. Yeah, that's very uh, Dave Canterbury like uh, Cody's uh, partner on uh, on Dual Survivor. Um, I, on that note, um, I, I don't dislike that show at all. In fact, I kind of enjoy it. But the Dave Canterbury that I know that I hang out with, I actually like a lot better than than the guy I see on TV. Would you say that it's similar with Cody? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, of course, that's a you know, it's a TV show and it's entertainment. Yeah. Um, but Cody is definitely a genuine, and so, you know, they probably, he has a, a bit of a TV personality just with, you know, we kind of live in a soundbite culture nowadays. Um, but he's he's definitely a, a really genuine, cool guy, although I don't know how he really got the um, the mark as a hippie. He's actually more yeah. of a rocker, right? Whenever I, I meet him that. at the uh, Rapstick. Yeah, when we meet at Rapstick Rendezvous, we usually uh, swap stories about Metallica concerts and... <laughs> Things like that. So um, I think the brain really, uh, feet are what gave him the hippie moniker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're definitely. You're I mean, he's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was saying go ahead. Oh, um, well, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, as, as far as like his personality as a person, uh, uh, I would just say incredibly intelligent, hilarious. Um, also, kind of a mother hen. On a course I did with him where it was a, like an intensive desert course uh, with no food. We didn't take really any food with us, just a blanket and some primitive gear. Uh, like the first day, like in a half day, everyone was just like dying. Everyone was crashing. And he was running around taking care of everyone, like really checking in with everyone, making sure everyone was uh, okay, getting his water, um, really like really taking care of everyone. And Awesome. And uh Yeah. So a guy that walks the talk because he can really do it when he has to. That's awesome. Um, now, you're mm-hmm. big into the tracking aspect of things, and we were talking off-air before we got started today, and uh, you're a pretty big fan of a guy I've read a lot on, Jim Corbett, and uh, he was a big game hunter in India, uh, shot an awful lot mm-hmm. of tigers and leopards, and, and honestly saved a lot of lives because those animals, yes. despite what National Geographic wants you to believe, will eat you. Uh, and some mm-hmm. of them turn pretty much full time. That's their occupation is eating people. And but you say there's actually a lot we can learn about tracking from the way those animals behaved and the way some of our animals over here behave as far as their stealth. Not necessarily. I mean, the occasional grizzly or cougar attack happens, but I think you're talking more about the animal's ability to to vanish uh, and to move unseen. So, yeah. so what do you mean by that? Uh, What's well, uh, interesting, yeah, and Jim Corbett, yeah, I, I just to reiterate on what you said, like some of the, the man-eating uh, lepers and tigers that he was hunting, yeah, they were responsible for like one one animal would be responsible for like 400 human deaths. And so these particular animals were, yeah, just completely terrorizing uh, the region in where he hunted. I think he was hunting from like 1907 to 1940 or 39, something like that. Um, but yeah, he was really saving a lot of lives by... Um, and really became a hero in that area. Um, but yeah, the, as far as the stealth, um, let me just say one story because there, uh, um, there's an area where um, there's a certain leopard hunting at a certain time, and he describes this. He ca- it's in a chapter called uh, "Terror" in one of his books, <clears throat> and he describes uh, how during daily life, because uh, the leopards tend to hunt at night. Uh, tigers tend to hunt in the daytime. Uh, that's just kind of a tendency, I guess. Um, 
But so when the leopard was in this area, uh, during the daytime, everything was normal, everything and everyone just went about their their daily business. But uh, when night approached, everything just went completely on on lockdown and just the whole place would just shut. Every village would just completely shut down. And there was a really strict curfew. Everyone obeyed it. Um, so these people were just absolutely terrorized. Um, and he tells the story of two men who were sitting together in an L-shaped room and they both had their backs to the, to the corner and there was a kind of a doorway along one end and they're passing like a cigarette or something back and forth. And one guy passes the cigarette to the, to his buddy. He takes a puff. He goes to pass it back, but then it drops on the blanket that they're sitting on. And he's about to tell his friend, like, oh, hey, be careful. You're, you're going to set our blanket on fire. And he turns to look, and they're sitting pretty much shoulder to shoulder, and the guy's gone. The guy's just absolutely gone. And he looks down the hallway. No sound, sees, no whimper, just gone. Just gone. And he sees the leopard carrying his friend out the doorway. And he tells, he tells us to Jim Corby, says, I did not even hear so much as the intake of a breath. While the while the leopard is killing and carrying away my friend, and that just that kind of just blows me away. That's so you know so close and make not a sound and to, and to carry a whole you know a grown man outside a door um, inches away from someone else. They're they're amazing animals. Um, I remember reading uh, Rourke uh, and one of the uh, leopards that uh, Harry Selby, who was one of the best known hunters in Africa ever followed up and he you know he goes after this uh this leopard and he he's following it and it begins to circle back and he the the trail goes cold and they're standing there with the trackers and and then they hear this sound and the leopard was up in the tree and basically bled out and falls dead right in between everybody um so it had it not had it not bled out it was it was setting up uh, with all of these expert trackers not able to figure it out, had gone up this tree and was setting up to to, to drop down on somebody. They're 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 amazing oh, wow. animals. Oh yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because there's I found a little correlation between the the leopard story I told and uh, there's actually a story that happened at uh, at Boss at the Bulldog Door Survival School. Um, we told it was kind of became a, a part of the lore at that school. It happened probably ten years before I was started working there. Um, but a bear actually came into one of the wiki-ups at, our, at the camp up in the mountains and, and pulled a woman outside of the, outside of the wiki-up. And it actually had to go over um, three or four, maybe two or three people, stepped over two or three people to get the woman. It had to pull her out a really tiny door. And so how the, there were just some little pink marks on her leg. She was fine. She wasn't injured or anything. Yeah. Um, but there were just some little pink marks on her leg. And so the bear would have had to, like, reach over these people, uh, grab onto her leg, pick her up, and then turn its head to the side and yeah. pull her straight out the door. And it, this all happened within a flash. No one heard anything. Her, uh, she just started screaming because all of a sudden she was, she was warm and cozy inside her sleeping yeah. bag. And then an instant later, she was out in the, run, in the rain in the mud with her sleeping bag gone and this giant bear standing over her. Which um, someone came out. What was it about her? Because, it, and I've heard of that with other animals, not just bears. Stepping over one person to get to another is like something about that individual is attractive to them. Oh well, well in this case, um, well it's interesting too because the uh, uh, it turned out she was menstruating, and so she uh, um, they had done a sweat lodge the day before, 
and they had a, a kind of a, a garbage bag set out. It was all tied up, but it was it set down maybe 100 yards away from the camp. Um, the bear had gone through the garbage, and there were some of her, her uh, pads in there. And then it actually went and it found her bag. There was also a, a number, like a few yards away, there was a, a, all their, um, just their gear, their bags sitting out. Um, yeah. The bear found her bag, uh, rifled through her bag, and then went to the wikiup, went to the shelter, and, and picked her out of everyone else. Wow. Wow. Yeah, but I just, um, but it, it happened really exactly the same way. It snuck into this wikiup inside a tiny door, pulled out someone without making a, without making a sound, in you know, in just a in a flash, and uh, just like a leopard did in um, in uh, in India, and so I think you know a black bear in southern Utah and a leopard in India doing pretty much the same thing. I just I think that's an interesting uh, correlation to, to make. And of course, there's never been a black bear that we know of that's eaten 400 people, but it, it's more about the capability and the ability. So, how do you think that relates to to tracking skills? Well, I think well, one of the big parts is just when we realize how uh, good animals are at disappearing and living pretty much right under our noses. Um, and certain animals in particular, like, like black bears, um, old bucks, old bull elk, uh, cougars, um, even sometimes javelina can just disappear in a flash and we'll walk, walk right by them. Um, and bear, especially when we think about um, it, it's an animal that we tend to think should be, uh, how would you say, pretty, uh, make it, it makes a big impact in the forest. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'll say that you would think that they would be noisy and they're big and clumsy and all, but my experience has been what you're saying, that they're not. They can be if they're tearing trees up for grubs or something, but many times a bear will go right by, and if you don't, if you don't catch him at a certain second, you'll never know he was there. Yeah, and actually I have a favorite story too from uh, John Young always told this story when he was sitting around a, a campfire one night with a group of people and there was a stream that was going around behind the camp and he was sitting there and people were maybe just talking, some people falling asleep and there was a, like a silence moving around behind him and he was actually hearing like the absence of the stream. So there, there was the stream, but then there was like something that was blocking the sound of the stream yeah. going around behind him. <laughs> and then he he kind of uh, like got everyone's attention and, and clicked a flashlight over, and there was a bear sneaking around behind him. So and he was he was it, it kind of ass in the stream, and he was disrupting the flow, so it, it it changed the sound or removed the sound. Yeah, like its body was actually like stealing the sound out of the air, like just gotcha. like a big muffler walking by. It just it just pulled the sound away from the away from the air. Um, it's interesting too, even with their foot with their feet. Because um, they make uh, in areas where there's, there's a lot of bear, and especially in, in like in Western Oregon where I live, uh, they really like steep country, like steep brushy country, um, place that would be really uncomfortable for people to walk. But they'll actually make like a they'll make like networks of tunnels underneath ferns and, and really through the thick brush, and use these little tunnelways, not little tunnels, but but you know like these these little pathways uh, over and over again. And even with their feet, like if you were to look at the foot of a black bear, it's really just like a giant pillow with like a hair fringe and they walk with a like kind of a twisting motion. And uh, so if you imagine like a, a bear stepping on a, a twig versus an elk or a deer stepping on a twig where, you know, the hoof steps on the twig, it's going to pop. Correct. You hear it. But a bear, if it steps on a, a twig or something, it's going to be just like a, 
you know, it'll, it'll, it'll really muffle that sound. So, so in a way, like, I mean, their, their bodies are almost designed to really just steal sound away from the, you know, steal the sound and so they can move invisibly. Yeah, I had a friend that was a probably 120th Cherokee or something like that and, and wanted to believe he was like 100% that hunted with a longbow and all. And one thing he was very correct about was he would hunt with moccasins, and he would say that when you're doing that, you can feel when you're trying to sneak. You can feel that twig. You can feel that pebble that's going to come loose. And I imagine a bear's foot works very much the same way. If they want to be stealthy, they have all this tactile sense with those pads, and they know where to apply pressure, uh, and they can roll their feet, like you're saying, to do that because they know when they're sneaking. I've seen them come into areas where it's very clear that they're uncomfortable and I've also seen them in a point where they don't give a darn and, and, and they can switch between those roles very very quickly um, so I mean and I think it's true with a lot of animals like you talk about how they disappear in places where you think you'd see them if you go to West Texas and you look out on like all these senderos and arroyos and all and you think there's no deer here there's nothing here that's more than 18 inches tall I can see for 10 miles in all directions and next thing you know, there's there's 20 deer moving through an area, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And you just have it's like there's mm-hmm. no possible way they're actually out of my uh, from this. You know, you're on a, like a high arroyo, you can see 15 miles in all directions. You know they're there somewhere, and it's it's amazing how they vanish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You had a similar experience too with with uh, Havelina, um, where I lived in Arizona. Um, there is a like a big rocky outcropping area that they didn't build on right next to to the city of Prescott. And I did a lot of tracking and, and stuff up there. And and I was just sitting on this rock one day and watching a group of javelina in this little valley below in this little oak grove. They were kind of just fishing through the ground looking for food. And I was watching them, and all of a sudden, like, I blinked, and they were gone. Like, they all just completely vanished. And I was like, where did these guys go? And then uh, uh, a minute later, a dog comes running through. And then just right after that, the dog's owner comes comes right by. They They just clear right through that area pretty quickly. Uh, instant later, all the javelina are back. They just completely hmm. reappeared, hmm. and um, actually, probably lucky for the the dog and the owner that they didn't stop because javelina can be um, can be pretty uh, pretty mean if you, especially the dogs. If you, if well, especially if there's a pack of one them. dog, right? I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a, a different scenario than one big dog and one javelina. If you got a you know, half a dozen of them and one small dog, you got a real problem for the dog. Yeah, like they would roam through Prescott and Pax, and they would, yeah, they, if they came across a dog, they would, they could rip it to shreds, and and uh, but I just, but I guess going back to our original point is like when animals vanish. Um, I whenever whenever I'm teaching a class, I just make the point that that all of us, like myself included, we've all been really close to good sized animals without even knowing it, and we probably just breeze right by them, and and they're so good at living right under our noses, and just having that awareness. Um, makes a big difference in in where we go to track animals or or where we look for animals and and our nature awareness in general. And I think that once you become aware of what sign is, you see it a lot more. I think you know people walk by and see nothing, and then a person that's a trained tracker walks by and sees entire stories laid out uh, with a few turned over mm. leaves or a, a bent piece of grass or a, a print that's there, but you generally wouldn't notice it. Things like that. Mm, oh yeah, yeah. Like actually, there was a um, working in Utah. We'd always uh, go through these really shallow streams, like the Escalante River. These other uh, kind of shallow rivers, maybe like they're like ankle to knee deep in some places. 
And me and another instructor, maybe someone else, were at the back of the group. We were kind of bringing, bringing up the tail on this course. And we're just essentially just walking up the stream. And I look down, and I see cougar tracks under the water in the stream. And I could tell, because uh, the uh, how it was walking, its front foot was reaching over its back foot. So I could tell it was walking fast. And it was also, its front foot was kind of kicked down stream towards us. And so it was probably peeking down downstream. And animals generally walk faster when they're a little anxious, especially cats and dogs. They'll, they'll pick up the pace if something's bothering them. Mm-hmm. And the whole, and I'm pretty sure that the the cougar didn't become in between us, you know, like the first part of the group, and then because we were quite a ways back, um, I don't think it came in between us. But I'm guessing it was it heard the very front of the group. It walked across the street really quickly, probably found a, a high place to walk us from, and, and then flanked you. <laughs> you know, the group just walked by. What's that? And let it and just basically flanked you, sat motionless to your side, let you pass. Yeah, yeah, and then but but, but seeing like tracks underwater. You know that's, that were that's wild. disappearing in front of my eyes. Like it was, it was right there. And then you know, most of the group just walked right by it. And then, yeah, um, I can't say I've ever picked up something that subtle before. I have found, I did find a deer one time that we had hit with a, a bow, and uh, it was bleeding really, really good, pink foamy blood from from a lung hit, and it went to a creek, mm-hmm. and it drank, and one way or another, it <laughs> kind of stopped bleeding at that point. And it went through the creek, and what we were able to do, it was just getting dark, so we all got down on our bellies and just started shining the light up and down the creek bank. And we were able to find water droplets off of the deer when it left the creek and headed back up the other bank to get back on the trail. Uh, but uh, I hadn't even really ever thought about trying to see a footprint in a creek. I'll have to take that as a challenge and see if I can ever find one. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Well, I'm sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure those those tracks weren't there. You know, 15 minutes later, would have walked yeah. away. Which so. means it was just like because like one of the things that I've been taught by a lot of trackers is that the problem usually isn't finding sign. It's 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 finding too much sign and knowing which sign is is new, what sign is what you're looking for, and what sign is old. And so when you find mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. you absolutely know if it's in moving water and it's there, it's fresh. It's not like you said, 15 minutes. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, um, you know, things like just droppings as well. If you find, you know, warm deer droppings, not that it's great dinner conversation or anything, but come on, if you're going to deal with droppings, deer's about as benign as it gets. You know, that's that's recent. It, it didn't stay warm for two days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're kind of really big into the axe stuff, right? So, I mean, you have this DVD. Yeah. Um, you want to tell folks a little mm-hmm. bit about your DVD? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, on the axes, really, since I was a kid, uh, I don't think I've liked or loved anything more than, than just swinging an axe, and uh, my dad taught me all about axes, how to, how to swing them, how to fix them, how to, how to sharpen, how to replace the handles um, when I was a kid, and um, yeah, and so the DVD itself, I, uh, yeah, I wanted to produce something that was uh, really comprehensive as far as all just basic safety, just really basic safety, um, basic swinging, like how to really swing an axe well efficiently, um, using your body efficiently, um, and then how to how to fix the tools. So how to uh, how to rehandle the axe, how to how to fix uh, handles that just maybe have a little bit of damage. Um, actually, I have a booklet too. There's a free booklet on my site that has um, more how to fix an axe handle with that instead of replacing it. Just all the little things you can do to to fill in cracks or tighten the axe head or 
um, just little tricks like that instead of replacing the whole handle. Um, but uh, too, and kind of going back to our conversation about fire making, uh, axe skills is just another area where um, that's really kind of sorely lacking with um, with uh, in general these days. Just even every time I watch someone swing an axe or or use one, I'm usually and I hate to say it, but it's you know it's uh, um, pretty lacking these days. Just general axe use, and I guess I take it for granted. I grew up with it, but. Um, uh, yeah, that's really the main idea is really just get a, a comprehensive, uh, full education on axes for, for folks. Well, you, you actually, in your notes that I have for the show, say that people really need to think a hell of a lot more about the handle uh, than they tend to do. Everybody thinks about an axe head, and that seems like it's the business end of the axe and mm-hmm. the steel part and all, but the, but the handle is actually what... You know what drives the business end. If we, if you have an axe head and you're just using your hand like a, like a, I don't know, like a spear point off a spear, you don't have any leverage. Uh, it really, it, it's the two working together in conjunction. So, are there certain things uh, people need to look at when buying uh, an axe, as far as its handle, and caring for the handle, you know, material, things like that? Yeah, yeah. When when buying a new axe, like if you're just going to go to the hardware store or uh, you know any type of place that that sells axes, and you can, I always recommend like um, you know, except for those kind of expensive boutique axes, kind of like uh, I mean, Grandsters Brooks or uh, Best Made Company um, that are pretty expensive axes. Like if you just want you know a, a thirty dollar axe that you know from your from your regular store, which will probably serve you just fine. Um, I always recommend inspecting the axes. You know, not not really buying axes online unless you really know the source, um, because there's a lot of things you want to look for, um, especially too. So when you pick up your axe, you want to look, you want to sight down the blade, and the blade should line up with the middle of the knob or the end of the uh, of the axe handle, so that so you know that it's going to be right in line. And when you're swinging it, it's it's going to hit where you're hit where you're aiming. That's the that's the first thing to know. Even too, I would give the I always give the axe a little jiggle. Just to make sure that axe head is on tight. I've actually been in hardware stores where, like, there's a brand new axe on the shelf and the axe head is a little bit loose on it, um, which is probably, I mean, to kind of back up a little bit, but a loose axe head is, of course, the, the most dangerous thing to do with an axe. And I don't recommend folks use a, an axe with a loose axe head uh, ever. And even if it's loose just a little bit, um, that axe isn't, isn't usable. Um, then going back to handles. Uh, also, the color of the handle is really important. It should be mostly white, and because we want the axe handle to be mostly from the sapwood of the tree, that's kind of the springier, livelier, uh, a little more bouncy wood, and because there's so much impact going into the uh, the axe handle, um, that's the wood we want. You'll sometimes see, like, if you see a mixture of axes, there'll be a, a like a brown section coming through a white section. That means they've that axe handle was taken from a... Uh, uh, a part where there was some heartwood, the center of the tree, and some sapwood, the outer outer ring of the tree. Those gen- tend to be fine, but you mainly want something that's mostly that white sapwood. Um, probably the, the most important thing for axe handles is you want to see the direction of the grain. And so what you want to do is you want to turn that axe handle over and look at the look at the knob, look at the bottom of the handle, and you want the grain to be going in the exact same direction as the blade. You don't want it to be going perpendicular to the blade um, because that's where all that that percussion is meeting that grain. Uh, you want it to be going with all that force, not you don't want the force going against the grain. And you actually say that it's important for us to understand the history 
of the axe handle in America, and I've never heard that before. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's interesting because it's just all those things. The more we understand about uh, the tools we use and how they came about, um, the more uh, – just the better we're going to be with our tools. And especially with axe handles, it's interesting because um, up until the 1840s, the single-bitted axe was the uh, professional felling tool. Um, after the 1840s, the double-bit axe replaced the single-bit axe as the, uh, as the main professional tool. And then, of course, the, it was in the 1880s that the double-bit axe made its way to the West Coast to follow the, the Western forests. Um, but the single-bit axe, as a professional felling tool, they generally had straight handles, and the handles were handmade uh, by the owners. And any curves that they had generally followed the grain naturally. And so these were really strong... Uh, well-made uh, handles that lasted a long time. Um, after the Civil War, we start seeing curved handles that are machine-made. Um, and so, of course, just going from handmade to machine-made, there's a drop in quality. Um, but also one problem with the curves is that these curves are unnatural. They don't follow the grain naturally. And so they're actually cutting across the grain and just making for a, a weaker axe handle that's going to break more often and need to be replaced. And are, are there people that do a better job of uh, axe handle manufacturing? I mean, are there people that maybe do it the old school? Maybe it's not um, maybe it's not handmade, but it's done kind of the old school design methodology or anything like that. Well, most I mean, most axes you find on the market for single bitted axes they have that curved handle, which I mean isn't you know it's not. Horrible. Um, although I do know Council Tool, they do make a Dayton pattern axe head with a straight handle, and that's some. I, do, I generally I just don't buy new axes, so that that isn't one that I've that I've tried out. But Council Tool is a one of the last American-made axes uh, axe companies. So um, those are if if we're looking for new axes, Council Tool is a good bet. Um, okay. And I'd love to try out that um, if I ever get the. Yeah, I'd love to try out their Dayton pattern with the straight handle. Um, but let's see what I was going to say. Um, uh, there are a few companies I like, but also, too, when I, when I recommend people, if like, you just want to buy an axe handle, uh, don't just go by brand, but really you got to inspect every huh. axe handle. Inspect each one carefully. Look for that grain direction, the straightness, uh, that white color. It should also have a waxy feel to it. Um, not, I don't like the ones with the shellac or the, the lacquer on them. I usually sand that off and put uh, linseed oil in its place anyway. Um, but a uh, uh, link company like OP Link, they generally make good handles. Um, VB, which is an offshoot of Vaughn, who makes um, uh, you know Vaughn handle or Vaughn tools, of course. Uh, they also make axe handles and handles for, for other types of tools. Those tend to be those are the two brands that I that I look for. Um, but then again, too, I, just, I don't usually go by brand. I go by the, the handle itself because it's always handle by handle that I, that I choose. You say that you don't generally buy new axes. I guess that's because you're such an axe person and you're, you're probably out there looking for older, unappreciated tools that you can buy in the secondary market. Oh, yeah. One, two. Also, just on a quality level, um, if folks want like a really quality axe that's going to last a long time, uh, the newer ones... Um, I mean, mostly like your, the dominant brand is Collins, uh, which you can find pretty much any hardware store. Those are made in Mexico now. Um, 
Council Tool is one of the last American-made ones. Um, better still, you know, that these are the more kind of affordable axes. Um, but if you look at flea markets or garage sales or farm sales for the older uh, style axe heads, um, like Sager, uh, Sager axes, uh, Man Edge Tool Company, um, Plum, I think I know another one, older Collins axes, um, these axe heads are going to last a, a long time. And that's I kind of recommend getting those axe heads, learning how to, to replace the handles, fix those up. And and then you're gonna have like some some great tools that are are gonna last a long time. Uh, on a maintenance aspect, I mean, there's the old famous quote by uh, Ben Franklin: "If I had, uh, you know, I think it's like if I had uh, four hours to chop a tree down, I'd spend three and a half sharpening it and a half doing the cutting." So uh, it was Abraham Lincoln. What was it? It was Abe Lincoln. Oh, it was Abe Lincoln. Okay. Yeah. I guess because he's got his axe, he's gonna be killing vampires in a new movie, which is yeah, just, yeah. What is water? <laughs> I mean, you talk about being out of ideas, but anyway, I mean, on, on sharpening and things and maintenance like that, what are some of the tools? And I'm sure if people get your DVD, this is all on there, and, and how to use them as well. But are some things that kind of need to go along with the axe uh, from a maintenance standpoint? Yeah, just on basic sharpening, uh, the first thing I'll say about it is, is uh, use an electric grinder. Unless you, And the caveat there is unless you really know how to, but even then, um, electric grinders, they heat up the metal very quickly, and they can steal a temper out of the uh, out of the axe head and ruin the edge forever um, unless you unless you retempered the uh, the axe head so um, so the electric grinder is definitely something to stay away from and actually the, the tools to sharpen it are really simple I just use a, uh, a double cut mill file uh, a sharpening puck and then a leather strop to uh, to hone the blade and the process is really simple I just um, clamp the axe down either in a vise or on its side work into the blade to remove metal with the um, removing metal with the uh, the file and then I hone it down with the uh, with the sharpening puck um, and the sharpening puck too is nice they're only they gen- they run about uh, ten dollars Lansky has one you can get on Amazon for about ten dollars it'll last you um, the rest of your life it'll last you more than than your files will last um, and then the stropping is really important too like once you have a honed edge with the uh, with the sharpening puck, you essentially use it just like, you know, you'd sharpen a, a knife with a whetstone. Um, uh, stropping is really important. It's kind of a, a step that a lot of people leave out. Um, but in, in the sharpening process, you're actually creating a, a burr or a feather on one side of the, this, the axe because you're, as you sharpen one side, you're pushing steel towards the other side and you're creating that little feather that hangs over. And then you sharpen the other side, you're pushing that burr, that feather back to the other side. And so that's the, the process of sharpening just kind of moves this burr back and forth. And it's fine to leave it there. And if you, if you start chopping with it right away, um, you'll remove the burr. It'll come off, but it can actually take some of your sharp edge with it. Um, but the stropping, and that's just like, you know, when you see a, an old style barber, you know, moving a razor blade up backwards on a, a leather, a leather strap, they're, they're bending that burr or that feather back and forth until it breaks off. And it's actually also uh, honing and burnishing that edge. So it's, it's, uh, it's compressing the steel. It's, um, it's, it's just really creating a really strong edge. And that, that's a step that a lot, that a lot of folks don't take, um, but that I recommend. I think there's probably a big hole in a lot of people's like homesteading plans, their survival plans and, and stuff that, that people really don't generally think about. 
uh, all the utility that a good axe actually provides. You think of an axe as I can chop wood with it, I can split wood with it, but there's actually an entire. It's like carrying a survival kit in one in many ways with all that you can do with with a good axe, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because like as a as a backcountry tool, like a small axe, like a three quarter axe or a Hudson Bay axe. Uh, oh yeah, there's so much you can do with uh, with a with a little axe. But also too, it's interesting because axes are also really surprisingly specialized tools, and um, and it is common to think that you know there's one axe for for every job. But really, there's axes to split, there's axes to to fell and chop, there's axes to uh, to swamp or clear brush. Um, uh, yeah, there's a. Yeah, that, that, I would just say that the axes are surprisingly specialized, and that's that's another thing that a lot of folks don't don't realize. So I also recommend folks get like a a number of axes. Like it's good to have a splitting maul, and a three quarter axe, or a, and a full size axe, and maybe a hatchet. I'm not super into into hatchets. You can do most of what you need with a a three quarter axe or a, or a Hudson Bay axe, and you can do big jobs and little ones um, that you can't do with a with a hatchet. What are your feelings then on tomahawks? I guess you're not real, real hip on those. Oh, I don't know. It's uh, um, yeah, I don't have much. Uh, I don't have much experience with those. I guess. <laughs> I think I threw some for a while, but I haven't done that for a while. <laughs> I think the big attraction for a lot of people is you get uh, quite a bit of power in a very light package. They, 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 they do do a good job for what they're intended to do, but. I'm kind of like you. I prefer a good axe to to a tomahawk, but I, I get why people carry them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just something like I just I do prefer. Well, actually, I mean, I've had the same uh, Hudson Bay axe since I was a kid. It was the I felled my first tree with it when I was maybe 13. It was a good size alder. Uh, my dad just took me out there, had me fell it, limit, chop it, and split it all with this little Hudson Bay axe, and I've had that same axe ever since. It's probably had maybe on its third handle. Um, right now, but yeah, I've, I've just always been a, like a Hudson Bay axe guy because you can really do a lot with it. You can do really tiny jobs just like you would with a hatchet. And it's actually interesting to, I don't know if folks know the shape of a, a Hudson Bay axe, but the, the pole or where it meets the, uh, the handle is a lot smaller than a, a regular three quarter axe. And so the, it tapers out to the blade. It has a kind of a wide blade, but with a narrow pole. And you can actually grab around it. You can grab around the, the axe head itself and, and in some ways do some, some somewhat fine carving with it if it's, uh, if it's sharp enough. So I know, yeah, I've always been just kind of a, a Hudson Bay guy. That's just always what I've carried. Now, I think obviously you would prefer somebody to go out and find some of these older axes, but if somebody was just going to go out and just buy a decent axe, you know, uh, is there a specific maker you would recommend for that? Um, probably right now, uh, I'd look at Council Tool. They um, they have a really wide range of axes. They do make they make a Hudson Bay axe. They make a they do uh, some full size Dayton patterns and Michigan patterns. Um, it's just going to be a quality. I mean, you probably have to get them online, but it's just going to be a, a quality American made axe. Um, also, too, I mean that's. I mean, I'm kind of snobby about it, but you know, you can just go to your uh, um, hardware store and get a Collins axe or, or a Vaughn axe. Those those uh, are are pretty good quality. Um, other than that, though, you're going to be getting axes are going to be getting pretty expensive, um, like the like I said, the Grantsters Brooks or the Best Made axes. Actually, Best Made axes those are Council Tool as well. They um, oh really? Yeah, they just dress them up pretty fancy, and and they're. Um, are you familiar with Best Made? I am, and I did not know that they were actually like a polished up council tool axe. I 
at the very least, the, the Hudson Bay axe they sell is council tool, and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure most of them are. So, hmm, that's that's interesting. Are there certain maybe books? I mean, obviously, we're going to make sure people get a, a chance to buy your DVD here. But are there some books or anything like that that would help somebody improve their axe skills? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Like the back, the books I really like. Probably my favorite one is called the Axe Book. Um, that's by uh, Dudley Cook, and he's an ex-marine. He has a lot of stories about felling trees and, and using axes. Um, but he really gives a compre. I don't think I've ever seen a more comprehensive written look at the axe and how it's used. Um, uh, yeah, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant book and really well illustrated too. I don't know the illustrator's name, but it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, I'd also recommend, uh, this isn't really on axes, but it's called the backyard lumberjack and it's by a, a father son team. Let me see. It's a uh, Frank and Steven Philbrick. And, uh, it's mainly about chainsaw. It's about chainsaw use, about, um, uh, kind of how to manage a woodlot. So it's all about felling, stacking, splitting, using stoves. Uh, has all the, all you need to know about BTUs of different types of woods. Um, I like it for for felling axes. That's one thing I don't cover in my DVD is, is uh, felling an axe with a, with an axe or felling excuse me felling a tree with an axe or a saw. Um, they go pretty in detail about felling trees with a chainsaw, um, but it's essentially the same process. You the same thing and follow the same principles except with an axe or a, or a handsaw if that's what you wanted to do. Um, and then another book actually is uh, Bushcraft by uh, it's spelled, or it sounds Kachansky but he pronounces it Morse Kahansky and he is a Canadian instructor and actually he is uh, a very big influence on the Boulder Outdoor Survival School. All of the knife stuff like the bush knife uh, bushcraft, all the things we do in, in, uh, in or we did in Utah um come pretty much directly from him. And he is a master with an axe. Um, and his book, Bushcraft, there is a, uh, a chapter on axes, and uh, it's, it's amazing. It's really great. Very cool. And then you have your website and your DVD that people can get. So tell, tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, well, my company is the uh, Old Federal Axe Company. And my, at the moment, my primary uh, uh, product is my DVD. It's called Axe Skills for the Homestead and Wilderness Survival. Um, and it covers everything from uh, chopping, splitting, safety, uh, safety gear, uh, sharpening, really de- two really detailed chapters on sharpening, kind of doing a basic sharpening and then more of a, an advanced sharpening if you want to manipulate the angle of the blade. Um, and then using a, an axe in the backcountry because there's some, there's some little tricks to using a smaller axe as opposed to using a bigger axe. And then just little tricks for... Um, for making backcountry life a little more comfortable and using it more efficiently. Um, I also have a free booklet called The Quick Guide to uh, Axe Safety and Repair, and it pretty much covers the most important safety aspects of using an axe, just little things you wouldn't think of, also just some quick tips. And then I do a pretty comprehensive uh, rehab of an axe, uh, of a second-hand axe, everything from sharpening it, grinding and fixing the pole, uh, applying linseed oil, gluing cracks, um, all things you can do to to make uh, axe handle last a lot longer awesome awesome stuff well folks uh i think you might need to uh consider an axe as part of your preps and if you don't know where to start you might want to go ahead and uh, pick up alex's uh dvd again the website for that is oldfedco.com 
I'll have links to all the books that were mentioned, uh, Alex's Facebook page, his website, all that good stuff in the show notes. And with that, hey, Alex, I really appreciate you being with us today. It's a subject we had not covered before, and uh, hopefully we'll send you a lot of folks to uh, pick up a copy of your DVD. Great. Yeah, thanks so much. I had a great time. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Alex Levins, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you